Hi, everyone, and welcome back for the 10th episode of Take It or Leave It, where we discuss the hottest topics in the world of workplace leave, absence management, and accommodations. I'm Meg Toth, and I'm joined by my fabulous co-host, friend, and colleague, Josh Seidman. Josh, I can't believe we're officially now into double digits with the number of episodes we recorded. I know, and it's mid-June. Where has the time gone, really? (laughs) How was your Memorial Day weekend? Did you do anything fun with your family? Hey, Meg. Yeah, thanks. And and a big hello to our listeners. Thanks, everyone, for joining us today. Uh, We did we did have a nice Memorial Day. Thanks for asking. You know, we uh, my wife and I caught our first Broadway show in over two and a half years. So refreshing, very nostalgic. Uh, We saw Hamilton for the first time. So that immediately put us in a great mood. And so much so that we decided to take on the 93 degree Memorial Day weather here in New York at the beach with our two kids and all the wagons and toys and coolers and chairs and all (laughs) everything that comes with it. (laughs) But yeah, it worked out really well. It wasn't as crowded as we thought. And the kids really had a great time. So so had a nice weekend. How about you guys? That sounds amazing. Yeah, no, our, our weekend started off great. Great weather here in Chicago. Had plans for the pool. And you said you caught your first Broadway show in a while. Well, our family caught COVID. So um, (laughs) put a little bit of a damper in the weekend, but I suppose it's par for the course. Our Christmas was ruined by COVID when my husband and I got it. Now our two little girls got it for this holiday, which also happened to be my birthday. So it was. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) Everyone's doing okay. I hope everyone is feeling good now. Yep. Yeah. Everybody is is feeling good. It it crept up on us a little bit. Thankfully, you know, symptom wise, everybody is pretty mild and, you know, and we're we're moving through it. But I think I can probably speak for a lot of people out there when I say I'm so sick of dealing with COVID. (laughs) (laughs) I'm, I'm right there with you. We had our COVID battle just a few weeks back that ran through the household. So I feel your pain, you know, on the other end of it now, everyone's doing okay. But yeah, I'm really sorry that you guys had to go through it twice in, you know, a handful of months, but I'm glad the kids are doing okay. Thanks, thanks. I appreciate it. And still sitting here with my fingers crossed, hoping we stay negative. We got a, a stockload. Crossing of mine for dinner. you too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So anyhow, that's I guess one of the, the big reasons I'm excited for today's episode is we're here to do a little bit of back to the basics on FMLA and ADA and you know, we're not talking about COVID today, even though I know much of our attention and our clients' attention has been focused on COVID and COVID-related issues for the last couple of years. You know, we can't forget that employers are still dealing with good old FMLA and ADA issues, including some novel issues like managing ADA and FMLA leaves in a remote work environment and addressing long COVID and other COVID-related conditions. So I guess we won't get out of completely talking or avoiding talking about COVID for this episode, but at least, at least we're looking at something a little different. Right. We'll give, we'll give it our best shot. But that, that's exactly right, Meg. You know, with so much going on in the world of COVID and paid leave generally, we thought it would be helpful for our listeners if we spend some time discussing some of the FMLA and ADA issues, both COVID and non-COVID related, that our clients have been dealing with recently. And that is why we are so thrilled to have Bill Perkins, a partner from our New York office and longtime ADA and FMLA guru, with us as today's guest for our episode. Clients turn to Bill to help them through their most difficult labor and employment matters. In addition, he helps them understand new employment law legislation 
hire or fire senior employees, address employment matters related to disabled employees, and understand application of leave laws. Bill also provides guidance in matters of nationwide reductions in force, as well as FLSA determinations and exemption status. Bill has nearly 40 years of legal experience dealing with matters relating to employment. He also offers understandable, practical solutions by drawing upon 10 years of experience as senior HR and more than a decade of employment law experience as an in-house counsel at two broadcast networks. And finally, on a personal note, Bill has been such a wonderful mentor to so many attorneys, myself included. Uh, In fact, a quick story about me and Bill, it was Bill's suggestion years ago, I won't say how many, but years ago when the paid sick leave law world was in single digits. So that gives you a sense of how far we've come today that we've got dozens and dozens of these laws. And Bill suggested that I take some time, think about each of the few laws that were out there, digest them, throw them into a tracker, and keep tabs on them and see where it goes. And as new laws pop up, put them into the tracker. Who knew that that would lead to my career as a leave of absence counselor? And who knows where it would have headed without Bill's support and his uncanny ability to prophesize the country's paid leave explosion. So Bill, thanks for everything. So happy to have you here with us today. Wow, well, thank you very much, Josh. And Meg, thanks a lot for inviting me to participate in episode 10 of Take It or Leave It. I mean, this is really an exciting experience for me. It's kind of like being the co-host of Saturday Night Live, except you don't have to attempt to be funny. (laughs) So I'm really looking forward to our conversation. (laughs) I love it, Bill. That's amazing. We're we're so happy you could join us today. And I actually had no, I don't think I realized that story. So I guess it's, it's you, Bill, we have to thank for all of Josh's expertise that he brings to the firm, at least in part. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah, well, Josh, Josh picked up the ball and ran with it and has scored many touchdowns. So it's, it's very, I'm very happy to see the result. Oh, I, I would have many, many times without you, my friend. So, so thank you for, for all that you've done. <laughs> That's amazing. So to start things off, Bill, can you tell us a little bit more about your background and experience specifically with FMLA leave and management and ADA medical accommodations in the workplace? You know, as Josh has noted, I've been practicing employment law for a lot of years and have lived through the enactment and the initial confusion created by the ADA in 1990 and followed by the FMLA in 1993. Both of these laws have a lot of crazy defined terms and have created a lot of questions and confusion and uncertainty within the business community, which in some cases, the uncertainty continues today and keeps me hopping in terms of client questions. (laughs) And Bill, I'm, I'm, I'm sure it does. It really is amazing how these laws are still keeping so many clients and, and us as counselors busy and, and forcing us into the weeds. Now, before we, we dive into some of the more pressing and recent FMLA and ADA issues that you and, and our clients have encountered in recent months, let's maybe level set things for, for our listeners. Can you give us a brief overview of the FMLA and ADA, things like eligibility, coverage, amount of leave, covered absences, and so on for the FMLA? and broadly how reasonable accommodations in that process works under the ADA. Okay, how many days do we have in this uh, podcast? <laughs> uh, so I'll tell you what, let me, let me do this. Let's keep this at a 30-foot uh, overview level, and we'll start with the ADA. The law is modeled on a 1973 law, which interestingly is called the Rehabilitation Act of 1973. It's a law that prohibited discrimination for disability and only applied to federal contractors. The ADA picked up on that and now applies to private employers who are not 
government contractors. It protects individuals with disabilities, and that's defined as a physical or mental impairment that substantially limits one or more major life activities, or a person who has a history or a record of such an impairment, or a person perceived to have an impairment. You know, in the last case, the person doesn't have an impairment, but the employer thinks they do and discriminates against them. The law has three subchapters, employment, which we're going to talk about, public services, and then Title III, which is public accommodation and services operated by public entities. We're only going to deal with the first subchapter, employment. To be covered, an employer must be engaged in an industry that affects commerce and they have at least 15 employees. The law requires employers to provide reasonable accommodation unless the accommodation creates an undue hardship. See all these defined terms we're dealing with? This is like, gets you crazy already. A reasonable accommodation can include a leave of absence, but unlike the FMLA, the ADA does not set a definitive term for the leave. And that is an area that has just been just driving everyone crazy. All right, let's switch gears and talk about the FMLA, and this will be a little faster. Mm-hmm. The FMLA mm-hmm. covers employers engaged in commerce that have at least 50 employees. The law provides for up to 12 weeks of unpaid leave, provided that the employee has been employed for at least 12 months, which there's 12 months, do not have to be consecutive, has worked at least 1,250 hours prior to taking the leave, and is employed at a location that has 50 employees at that location or within 75 miles of that location. So it's very possible that an employer has facilities that in some cases are covered by the FMLA and others aren't. That's very different than the ADA, which only has a 15-employee requirement, and once you're covered, you're covered everywhere. Thanks for that, Bill. That was incredibly concise and helpful at the same time. I never imagined someone would be able to cover both of those laws with such efficiency. So thank you for that. Looking back at the last six to 12 months, what are the one or two most common FMLA issues at the top of what I assume is a long list of topics that you have been helping employers with? Okay. I'm not sure if I can keep it to two, but let's <laughs> let's talk about a, a short list, okay? Perfect. Managing intermittent leave you know, has been a problem, as you pointed out, from the word go. And it has continued to be a problem, a thorn on everybody's side. Leave requests uh, related to COVID or COVID-related conditions are challenging, to say the least. And we'll talk about a little bit more later. The failure of employees to timely provide medical certification and the proliferation of insufficient and incomplete medical certifications by their healthcare providers has become worse as a result of the COVID pandemic. Very interesting, Bill. Yeah, it's it's so, I mean, to hone in on just those three topics and how nuanced each of them can get, I, I know so many of our clients have been trying to manage through those, especially as issues have come up in the last couple of years. Let's maybe focus in on the intermittent leave piece for, for just a second here. So in terms of managing intermittent leave, which, as you said, has been notorious since the get-go as one of the most challenging issues for employers to manage and to prevent abuse, how has that changed now that so many employees are working, at least in some capacity, working remotely? And what tips do you have for employers 
who are trying to manage these situations where they might be seeing some employee abuse with respect to intermittent leave. Okay. With the advent of the hybrid work schedules, you would think that the amount of time needed for intermittent leave would have decreased since everybody, for the most part, is kind of close to where their medical providers are. You don't have to go, in the the case of New York City, go back to Brooklyn to go to your doctor. It takes a lot of time. Right. Um, Makes sense. But that hasn't been the case. With COVID, there's been an increased need in many cases for employees to care for covered family members and also attend doctor visits relating to their own medical conditions, which in effect has upped the need for intermittent leave, it seems. In terms of dealing with this, you know, for non-exempt employees, employers are now forced to trust the clock out, clock in times that employees are taking, even when they take intermittent leave during the course of a workday. The boss isn't there watching them leave and watching them come back. So we have to take their word as as to how long they're really taking. Employers have to stay vigilant for abuses, which in some cases can be apparent through recurring patterns of absence, you know, Mondays and Fridays. In some cases, employers can enlist their health insurance administrators to alert them to either suspicious reasons for absences or unusual duration that intermittent leave is requested. You know, the famous hangnail case, which goes back a long, long time ago where somebody was taking, in effect, 12 weeks for a hangnail problem, but a real case nonetheless. And so situations like that, you have to be vigilant for. <laughs> that's so funny. I, that's, that's super helpful. So another challenge that you identified at the top of your list was responding or addressing requests for FMLA leave for either COVID or COVID-related conditions. Can you speak to that a little bit more in terms of what kinds of requests, or I should say conditions, are employers seeing requests to take FMLA leave for? And are these conditions actually FMLA covered? Sure. Well, being infected with COVID or long COVID, they're serious health conditions covered by the FMLA, provided that you meet the requirements of either a hospital stay or the number of days being incapable of working. Many times, employers are seeing leave requests to care for family members who are not covered by the FMLA. You know, the FMLA has a much more limited family member coverage than most state and local laws. And employers have to be very careful about not charging FMLA leave to an employee who's taking leave to care for a non-covered family member because this creates a trap. At some point in time, the employee subsequently requests another FMLA leave. The employer says, oh, no, you've used up all your FMLA leave for that COVID time, and we're denying the leave. If that person who was being cared for is not covered by FMLA leave, the employer has just violated the law. A scary wow, situation. Bill. It's fascinating. It's a, uh, a no good deed goes unpunished scenario, for sure. <laughs> that- My goodness. I think, you know, now that we've had so much fun with the FMLA, why don't we switch gears now to the ADA and ask the same question that we started you off with in the FMLA space. What has been, from your perspective, the top one or two most common issues that you've been helping employers with under the ADA over the last uh, six or 12 months. Okay, Josh, I can't get it down to two issues, but let me, that is let no me give, problem. You, let me give yeah. you the ones that, are, that are the, seem to be on the hit parade here. We, we will, we will uh, take whatever, whatever you've got for us, Bill. <laughs> okay, all right. So 
leave as a reasonable accommodation is a big one. Request to work remotely, pregnancy-related medical conditions, and asserted conditions which prohibit the individual from being vaccinated for COVID. I think that's a pretty good short list. And I'm going to jump right on to leave as a reasonable accommodation because we know that one's everybody's favorite topic and an issue that has been and continues to challenge employers daily. Can you give us a little refresh on this topic, including sort of when and why leave may be considered as a reasonable accommodation under the ADA and maybe when it is not? Um, And then any tips for employers navigating leave requests under the ADA? And if at all, how this has been impacted by COVID. I know that's a lot. Yes. Uh, This will be longer than two sentences. A reasonable accommodation enables an employee with a disability to perform the essential functions of the position. Employers can ask an employee for reasonable documentation about the disability and their functional limitations. Because remember, in order to get a reasonable accommodation, the employee has to have a disability that's covered by the ADA. The employer is entitled to know that the individual has a covered disability for which a reasonable accommodation is needed. A reasonable accommodation is not required where it would create an undue hardship for the employer. And this is where it gets really tricky. In determining undue hardship, an employer must assess if the request creates a significant difficulty or expense in addition to whether it would be unduly extensive, substantial, or disruptive, or would fundamentally alter the nature of the operation of the business. Now, removing essential functions, this is one of those defined terms, from a position is not required as a reasonable accommodation. So, for example, if somebody has to be in the office working remotely, may create an undue hardship on the employer. Employers must review accommodation requests on an individual basis. And it's not one size fits all. This is has to be really stressed. We have to look at the medical certification to be ensured that it is complete and sufficient and meets the needs with regard to satisfying the individual having a disability. If the employer can't obtain complete and sufficient medical certification from the employee and his or her medical provider, the employer has the right to request an independent medical examination of a third-party doctor to ensure that the employee does, in fact, have a disability. The big thing here is that the law only requires an effective accommodation. It's not the most expensive alternative, and it's not necessarily the accommodation that the employee has requested initially. The employers must engage in an interactive accommodation process or risk being held liable. And so what that means is there there can be some horse trading here, but ultimately it is the employer's determination to determine whether to grant or deny the reasonable accommodation that requested or provide a secondary or tertiary alternative way to satisfy the issue. So in the context of a leave request, perhaps, and I know I see this a lot where someone has exhausted their FMLA leave but needs more leave, is this the process then that the employer has to go through to figure out whether or not this additional leave requested can be granted as an accommodation? 
Yes, it does. And, you know, the EEOC in particular is very definitive in the idea that just because the FMLA ran out doesn't mean that you can fire the employee or say no. You have to engage in this reasonable accommodation process, which is based on the medical certification that you receive. And uh, leave that has no end is not a reasonable accommodation. However, a request for three more weeks of leave is something that it's very hard to deny. And so it becomes an individual decision based on all the facts that are presented. And it is very challenging, to say the least. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, so helpful, Bill, to walk us through that. And like you said, so many moving pieces and, and definitions, individualized assessments that companies have to walk through each time this comes up. One thing that you hit upon that I, I think is worth another few minutes here is this concept of with more employers starting to have some expectations around in-person work and that being met with some resistance from employees who are reluctant to return. We've heard this argument. Well, we worked remotely for over two years. Why do we need to come back now? And you have employees requesting to work remotely as a reasonable accommodation. Are you seeing that employers are getting you know, stuck, for lack of a better term, with having to provide remote work as a reasonable accommodation if it's requested from employees who have been out working remotely during this pandemic? And, and what tips or advice have you been offering to employers to avoid such arguments from their employees? Okay, this is a uh, challenging area to say the least because, you know, this is the having worked remotely for two years, people have gotten very accustomed not riding the subway and not having to eat out and spend a bunch of money at lunchtime. But this is also an unusual area where the EEOC has actually been helpful to employers. They've provided a guidance that, among other things, says that remote work caused by government shutdowns does not require the employer to continue remote work after the governmental restrictions on office work ends. And so what we're back to is that remote work can only be a reasonable accommodation if the employee has a medical disability or mental disability. And that has to be bolstered by not the employee say so, but a medical certification that makes sense. And I will tell you that in the last several months, I have seen the most ludicrous uh, medical certifications you can imagine. And it's a thing that ultimately what we're going to see is that doctors are going to wake up and understand that if there's a lawsuit, they're going to have to testify under oath as to why an individual needs to work remotely. And I don't think that they have quite caught on to that yet, but there will be cases, and I think you're going to see a change of position on the part of many physicians. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's a great point, Bill, too, right, to, to sort of circle back to the beginning of what you spoke about, where you have to go through that interactive accommodation process, right? That it isn't just taking the worker's word for it. It is, if you want the remote work as an accommodation, you have to go through the same steps you spoke about, about proving that, that they have the covered disability and then going through the interactive process. Is that right? That's correct. And, you know, we typically have physicians fill out an assessment form in which there are questions in there which pin the physician down as to what is the problem, how long is it going to last, what is a reasonable accommodation. And so that gives the employer a lot more information than just something that's written on a prescription script that Bill can't come to work because he has anxiety. Great, great. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
And I also know similar to this point too, and uh, you know, I've seen in practice employer or employees make the claim, well, I've been able to perform my job from home for the last two years. So how can you say it's an essential function to be in the office? And I don't know if you've seen this as well, but in addition to determining whether or not there's truly a qualifying disability here, you know, employers are taking more steps to make sure it's clear about their expectations around remote work and why being in the office is important, whether that's in a job description or other communication, so that they're able to sort of counter those arguments that it actually is important for you to be in the office and we can't just accommodate that away. Meg, that's a that's a great point because you know the the issue of being able to sort of stay afloat when everybody's working at home is a lot different than running efficiently when people are working in the office and are collaborating with each other and decisions can be made on the spot. And the law does understand that there's a little bit more than well, I've been able to wear my bunny slippers and and sit around and be on a computer half-dressed talking on Zoom as compared to actually doing work in the office that's really needed. And, you know, yeah. there's an, the efficiency issues are things that employers can point to. In addition, one of the other problems you have is that many employers have vaccination policies. And again, we have this issue about medical conditions that are, you know, preventing people from wanting to get vaccinated, which is a whole other problem. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We have a whole, we actually had a whole podcast dedicated to that big issue previously. Mm-hmm. So, yes, absolutely. So, I know I heard you mention mental health issues and accommodations related to those types of medical conditions. So, I wanted to focus a little bit on that because I, I know it's a very unfortunate reality, but we have seen an uptick in requests from clients to help them through accommodation requests by employees related to mental health issues such as anxiety and depression, which honestly and and typically result, or or I should say shouldn't result, but they arise as a result of performance management or during the performance management process and uh, often involve requests to do away with essential job functions. What tips or advice have you been providing employers in terms of managing these types of situations? Well, as pointed out, just being anxious because you have to ride the subway in and of itself doesn't rise to a level of an ADA disability. However, if the employee does, in fact, have a medical condition for which they're being treated and can prove that they're being treated for this medical condition and have a healthcare provider indicating that there's issues, then, you know, at that point, the employer's opportunity to challenge the request really becomes rather minimal. This really just takes us back to the medical documentation issues that we've been talking about and looking to be certain that they do spell out in their they're complete, they're sufficient, and they're not suspicious in their sounding, and, and which is a, a thing that as lawyers, we have JDs, not MDs, and, and many employers don't have either. And where somebody puts on that imaginary white coat and starts psychoanalyzing their employees, they're headed down the wrong path and they're going to have a problem. Now, reasonable accommodation, when you think about it, you know, it says if the circumstances seem reasonable that to provide the request, 
then it's probably a reasonable accommodation. You know, that's the way the EEOC looks at it. And so this is an area that employers have to look at very carefully, have to very gingerly ensure that they're getting the information from the employee and their health care provider. And if it looks as though that they've got good information, then they have to grant the accommodation. You you go, you, you get no extra stars by creating a lawsuit for yourself because medical disabilities, especially mental health issues, are very difficult to win if you get into a litigation. That's a great point. And I know in my practice, I've seen some medical documentation that even when it sort of shows the employee is treating for a mental health condition, it's completely lacking in terms of what their actual restrictions are. And so we frequently have to go back to providers to get that information and completely agree. It's not worth, you know, fighting over whether or not the employee has actually has the the mental health condition in some situations, but what are their restrictions? Yes, and and how long are they going to last? And, And also the other fishy kinds of medical certifications are ones that you could swear were written by the employee. And, you know, the ones that always say, and and she has always performed her job well for the last two years at home, and staying home would really be helpful. Being helpful is not a medical diagnosis. You know, so those kinds of medical certifications, you have to drill down. That's a great point. That's a really great point. Really such good information, guys. And, and we're, we're so lucky to have, have both of you here helping guide clients through these, these tricky tightropes that they're walking. And again, each case is going to be different. So one more wrinkle, and Bill, this is our, our last question for you today. You know, one more wrinkle to throw into the mix. In addition to the FMLA and ADA that we've spent this episode going through, there are also state and local anti-discrimination laws involving disability that could impact an assessment of accommodations in a particular employee situation. Now, understanding we're, we're covering a broad set of laws and each location can kind of vary based on the statutory language and guidance and case law and, and the like. Any any thoughts on how state and local standards come into play here for, for what we've gone over on today's episode? Wow, I guess, guess we're into the lightning round here, huh? Um, yeah, there, there are, for the most part, state and local disability laws are modeled on the ADA. And so accommodation and undue hardship, you can see that, that going through all these other state and local laws. Administrative enforcement of the state and local laws many times is more aggressive than the EEOC. And plus, these state and local laws can require additional steps that are not required by the ADA. New York, for example, the interactive process, they use another name for it, a cooperative dialogue, which in and of itself, you know, it makes no difference. But they require a written determination that must be provided to the employee. And also what they suggest is that there should be specific time frames for once the accommodation request was made, when the response should be made, but more importantly, a written documentation as to whether it's granted or denied. And so you have to really look at where the employee is working or what law is going to apply. And working at home obviously creates even more problems because even though the employee may be assigned to New York, for example, they may be working remotely in Chicago. 
which raises a question of which state law is really going to apply to the individual. And so, you know, employers really just can't take the ADA and just take it at face value and deal with disability issues that way. They have to look at state law. That's absolutely right. Yeah, it is, it's a tough area to navigate for sure. Yeah, and Bill, Bill, thank you so much for your time today for walking us through and our listeners walking through the overview of these laws, the nuanced scenarios that are coming up over the last handful of months with the pandemic peeking its way into the mix and, and, and into what these employers around the country are having to go through as they navigate FMLA and ADA issues. Well, thanks again for inviting me. This has been a blast. Really enjoyed it. And maybe you'll invite me back some other time. We would love that. We would absolutely love that, Bill. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you so much for joining us today. And to our listeners out there, thank you for tuning in for this episode of Take It or Leave It. We will see you next time.